I want to meet God. I just want to meet him on my terms. In essence, God is kind of like a bear. Bears are really great to meet in zoos, behind glass walls, even with a moat maybe in between. But you meet a bear on its terms in the wild. It's a totally different experience. So a few years ago, I was in Kings Canyon National Park in California. And Kings Canyon is, it's an incredible place. It has all the scenery and the the beauty that Yellowstone or Yosemite has, but it has none of the people because very few people know about it and it's kind of hard to get to. So it's, it's an incredible place if you want solitude. And one day while I was there, that's what I wanted. I wanted some solitude, wanted to get alone. And so I took this hike. I was several miles, a few hours away from where anybody else was out in the Californian mountains. And during a part of the hike, when I was about as far away from people as I could get, I came over a little hill and about from where I stand now to the back of the sanctuary was a brown bear. And I froze instantly because I had never encountered a bear on its terms. And I thought, what, what happens next? Now, thankfully, the day before, I talked to a park ranger, and she would given me two pieces of advice. The first one being that if you encounter a bear, you should put your hands above your head and sort of wave them so the bear can see you. So I'm thinking, that's not what I want. I don't want the bear to see me. I want the bear to ignore me. But she said, no, it'll help see that, he, that you're human. And the second thing you do as you're waving your hands above your head, you, you just speak kind of soothingly to the bear. You, and she suggested you just wave your hands and say, whoa, bear. <laughs> Which, looking back, it, it sort of made sense when I was talking to her. But when you're standing next to a bear, the only thing I really wanted to do was just run away, scream, and help me, Jesus. <laughs> but I, I mustered up enough strength, trusted her with my life. I put my hands above my head. And I try to talk to this bear, talk him down, you know. And, and all that comes out is just a little, whoa, bear. <laughs> right? And the bear, probably you're not surprised at this, kept coming closer. Which at this point, I'm out of ideas. Right? I don't have a deep bench of ideas of what I do when a bear is coming at me. Right? I don't have a lot of thoughts, haven't given that much consideration. So the bear just keeps coming at me. And as he's walking closer to me, I just sensed this fear I had never sensed before that I was completely not in control of the situation. And for many of you, you may have been reading the Old Testament for the last eight months. And a common sentiment I hear when people read the Old Testament is, you know, the God of the Old Testament kind of freaks me out a little bit. He's a little scary, right? He gets angry. He does things that we sort of look at and think, did God really do that? And then we get to the New Testament, right? And it's sort of like God took a nap or got in a better mood or something happened that just changed his disposition. And suddenly now he's really nice and we like Jesus, right? Jesus is kind. He's kind of soft, right? We, like, we can cuddle next to Jesus. The God of the Old Testament, totally different deal, right? And as we've been preaching through the whole Old Testament as a church, and maybe you've been reading along with us in open here, maybe your sentiment as we go into the New Testament today is, whew, we're out of that God, and we're into Jesus now, and it gets better, thankfully. <clears throat> but that would be a mistake, because if Jesus is anything, he's just the, the God of the Old Testament getting closer, coming near, wanting to meet us on his terms. And so if we look at Jesus and we think it gets easier, I think we misunderstand who he is and what he said and what he was about. Because Jesus is the, the, the same God as the Old Testament. The God who split the Red Sea in half. The God who turned the Nile River into blood. That God has become a human being to get closer to you. To draw near. 
And as we read in Luke 2, when he draws near, as he comes closer, the angels are clear. He says, they say, listen, this baby means good news and great joy for all people. Probably seems really great. And it is. It's good news and it's great joy for all people. But it's probably just not how we typically think. And so this morning, I just want to ask two kind of basic questions. How does God's birth really mean good news for all people? And how does his birth offer great joy for all people? So first, how does God coming into earth, how does God being born mean good news for all people? Because most things are not good news for all people. What's good news for some is generally bad news for others. For example, kids, let's say today when your parents take you home from church, they say after lunch, hey, we have good news. This afternoon, Sunday afternoon, Labor Day weekend, you don't have school tomorrow, we're going to take a family nap all afternoon. Right? That would be very bad news, right? Because Sunday afternoon, especially with no school the next day, they're made for soccer and trampoline and getting sweaty and being outside, not for napping. And yet parents, if your kids came to you today and said, hey, let's just take a nap this afternoon, that would be like the best news you probably ever hear in your entire life, right? To have two hours of just rest and solitude and peace. That would be very good news, right? But so what's good news for some, not good news for others, or I think about every four years at election time, I love hearing the people who threaten to move to Canada or somewhere else if the, uh, their guy loses the election. And then the other people start acting like God is now president and everything's going to be great and tears are going to be stopped from the earth. Yeah, it, just, it becomes this place of either incredible good news or incredible sorrow. Right? I mean, good news is not always good news for all people. And yet the angels, that's how they in- introduce this God coming into earth, that it's good news for all people. And so me, maybe a little bit of a cynic, asks, how? How can Jesus be good news for every person? And the time he's born into was a time that needed good news. That if you remember it last week when Nathan was preaching from Malachi, between the end of the Old Testament and the birth of Jesus, there's 400 years where God didn't speak, where there was no scripture added, there was no prophets, there was no special revelation of God during those 400 years. And it would be easy for us maybe to say, oh, God was... Maybe that was God's nap when he got in a better mood, right? He wasn't doing anything during that time. But that's, that's not the case. And in the, the letter to Galatia, when the Apostle Paul's writing to them, he, he says, listen, during this period, this is what God was doing. Galatians 4.4. 4. He says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth, or God sent forth his son born of a, wor- of a woman. When the fullness of time had come. In other words, God is directing, he directed that history to a place to prepare for the birth of his son. And he directed history to a place at this time when Jesus is born where Rome was sort of the the superpower of the day. And the king of Rome, the, uh, the Caesar of Rome at that time was Caesar Augustus, maybe the most loved or the most powerful of all of the Roman Caesars. He was the nephew of Julius Caesar. He was the one who instituted uh, 200 years of the Pax Romana, which just simply meant that there was this time of extended peace for Rome. And even though there wasn't complete peace, there was still violence in some respects. Generally, it was a good time, a prosperous time for Rome. So people looked at Augustus as a great leader. And yet, Luke, I think, is saying that there's another king that's coming. Because Caesar is not the only king in this passage. Throughout Luke 2, you may have noticed the name David shows up quite frequently. In verse 4, Joseph goes up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David. And Luke, at the end of verse 4, stresses that Joseph 
was in the house in the lineage of David. And then as the angels are announcing to the shepherd what's going on, they, they say, this, go to the city of David. Why David? Well, in the Old Testament, there's this incredibly important moment where the king David, who was a king in the Old Testament, tells God, God, I want to build you a temple, which was a, a good request. I mean, it was a good thing to want to do. But God says to David, you're not going to build me a temple. I'm going to build you a house. Not a literal house, but I'm going to give you a line of kings that will reign forever. And so one of your sons is going to reign from your throne into all eternity. And so that became a source of great hope, especially when, when the Israelite people, when, the, when God's people were being ruled by Rome. They thought just when the son of David's born, when that king comes, then we'll have hope. Then we'll have good news. Then we can t- cast aside the Romans and God's own son, David, the, the, the king in the line of David, will come and will reign. And Luke is saying that king is being born. He's come. But as we read, there's, there's, there's problems, Right? This king looks kind of weak and pathetic. Or that it starts when the angels say to the shepherds, there will be a sign, you'll know it's the king. Right? And that sounds strong, right? If a king has a sign, you think it's something he's going to put on a shield or put, put into battle, right? So that, that he can have a sign of his power and his authority. Or if he's sending letters out, right? He's going to stamp it with his seal so people know this, this came from Augustus, came from Caesar, You have to read this. And yet, what's the sign that the angels say to the shepherds is of this king? Verse 12. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. This is the king that's going to replace Caesar. A king born where animals live. Placed in a place where animals feed. Born in a town in the middle of nowhere. This kind of looks pathetic, a little weak, right? And more than that, look who gets the announcement of the birth. Shepherds. If Caesar had a baby, my guess is all of the most powerful people would, would know about it. And they'd all, there'd be a, a grand party. It'd be an incredible occasion. And yet here, angels show up to shepherds in the middle of the night, which is the, sort of the equivalent of, of just guys working the night shift, making close to minimum wage. Guys not socially important. Guys that aren't high on the the social status. They're the ones who get this birth announcement. Not the powerful, not the kings, not those who are in charge. And so this is incredibly important for us to see. The sign of our king and who this announcement goes to. Because what what they are saying to us is that there is no one who is too low for his kingdom. And that's why Jesus, that's why God's birth can be good news to all people. Because there's no one too low to get in. He's a king born among animals. He's a king announced to shepherds. You don't have to be powerful. You don't have to be be someone incredible. You don't have to be righteous. You just have to be a person. Because no one is too low to get into this kingdom. And this is where encountering God on his terms is so hard. Because you have to get low. You have to humble yourself. You have to come empty-handed. And if this is true, if we as a church believe that this is the king we worship, right? The king born in a manger, the king born among animals, then that should make us as the church the most loving, kind-hearted, gracious, open people that exist. Because we will never sit across the table from someone and say that they're too lost. 
that they're too broken, that they're too far, that they've sinned too much, that they're, they're too bad. Well, we can never say that because there's no one too low for this kingdom. Because that's the king we worship, a king born in a manger. I, I try to think of a good way to illustrate this all week. And I, the best thing I could come up with is I'm a, I'm a Chicago Cubs fan. And if you know anything about baseball, you know the Cubs are the most pathetic sports franchise that has ever existed in any sport, in any city, in any place. They have not won the World Series in a very long time. In fact, since the Cubs last won the World Series, the world has changed a lot. Television was invented. (laughs) Radio was invented. The Titanic was invented since the Cubs last won the World Series. And what that means for me as a a baseball fan of the Cubs is that I can never look at other baseball teams with disdain. I can never look down on them because I root for the most ridiculous team that exists. And likewise, if you worship, if you worship a God born in a manger, whose sign is that he's wrapped in swaddling cloths, announced to shepherds in the middle of nowhere, then you're not a high-status person. And you can never look at anyone else and say, you're not good enough. You can never look at other people with disdain. Because how you get into this kingdom is not through your goodness, but through humility, through getting low, through seeing your need for a king born like this. And so that should make the church, right, a gracious, open place. And yet, let's be honest, most people don't look at the church that way. And a part of that, right, is because we as a church, we have to call sin, sin. And we live in a culture that says, just live however you want, do whatever you want, be whoever you want. And we know as as Christians, if we take the Bible seriously, that doesn't bring life. And so we can't buy into that. We can't give our stamp of approval to that. So anytime we say something maybe isn't good or maybe isn't right, people look at that as, as being hard-hearted or closed-minded or narrow. And I understand that, but I'm not going to let us off the hook that easy because I've spent my whole life in the church. I've spent 10 years being a pastor and I have been around in, in too many churches that are not gracious places, that are full of dissension and full of criticism, full of, of hard-heartedness, full of, of shortness towards others. So the question is, why? Where have we gone wrong? What, what have we done Well, before I went to seminary three years ago, I I pastored a small rural church in Indiana for about four years. And during that time, there was a woman in our church who our um, elders prayed for. We actually, she came to Christ. It was just an incredible moment. But but her conversion just meant a lot more work needed to be done. And and she was a mother of two daughters who she didn't really want to be a mother to. She um, was constantly getting involved with the wrong guys, but was always convincing herself that the next guy was the right guy. And so she had made kind of a big, big mistake. And so as elders, we were praying for her and I was talking to her one day and she just wasn't happy with me. And, and I was really frustrated with her just thinking, well, what's wrong with you? Why don't you get this? You've been converted. Jesus has given you new life. Why do you keep returning back to other things? Right, what's wrong with you? And I was just so frustrated and, and so short and left so discouraged. And, and, but, but at that time, I was reading this book and in this book, some of you might have read it. It's called The Reason for God by Tim Keller. And there were words that I read in that book that forever changed the way I look at the church, the way I look at people in the church, and the way I see God's good news and how it really is for all people. Here's what Tim Keller writes in The Reason for God. The mistaken belief that a person must clean up his or her own life in order to merit God's presence is not Christianity. This means, though, that the church will be filled with immature and broken people 
who still have a long way to go emotionally, morally, and spiritually. As the saying has it, the church is a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. And when I remembered that, when I read that, I remembered two things. First, I remembered my own entry into the kingdom. That I did not enter the kingdom with God saying, good, you're on my team because you're awesome. And I was a little worried there for a while because if I don't have you on my team, things might be in trouble on earth. That is not at all how I entered the kingdom. That I had a very clear moment in my life where God called me into ministry and I spent three years running the other direction. That I have no doubt there were people all through my high school years, all through my college years looking at me saying, why don't you get it? What is wrong with you? Stop it. Repent. Stop acting like that. You don't get it. You're not good enough. There were all kinds of people who could have said that about me. And my entry into the kingdom of God was not out of my grandness or out of my goodness or out of my abilities. It was out of the fact that I had nothing to give. And thankfully, I had a king born in a manger who, who welcomes just those sorts of people. So I remembered that, right? That's my own entry into the kingdom. But, but second, then it changed the way I viewed the church, and the church isn't few, full of, of really mature people. Let's be honest, right? We are people who see we need this king. And we come empty-handed. Right? And so the people around you, the people in the church, they need your prayers. They need your grace, your encouragement, your kind words. And yet so often the church is a place where dissension is what defines us where someone does or says something we don't agree with or we don't like, and our first thought isn't, I'm going to intercede for them. I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to fast for them. But our first reaction is, who can I tell to tear that person down? Or people who frustrate us at work or wherever. All right, we just count them out. We just get frustrated. We vent. We never think God's good news is for them. And the reason they're frustrating me now is because they need that good news. They need my prayers. They need my grace. They need my encouragement. That if we really worship a king born in a manger, it changes everything. We can never look at people with disdain. We can never think ourselves better than others. Because you didn't come into this kingdom worshiping a God born in Caesar's palace. You worship a king born in a manger in the middle of nowhere. And that's why this can be good news for all people. And that's why Jesus, encountering Jesus on his terms, is kind of like encountering a bear. He comes and he reminds you, you're empty-handed. You don't have anything to offer. You can't stop what's happening. You just have to lay down, humble yourself, become low. And so the church then, right, we're nothing more than a bunch of wretches who know their need for a humble king to gather. To gather in a place to say to anyone that no matter where you are, what you've done, where you've been, where you're going, what you're going through right now, we have good news for all people no matter what. We're the only place that can say that. That's truly good news for all people because no one is too low to come into this kingdom. So that's where we start. That's how God's, good, how God's birth is good news for all people. But how does God's uh, birth bring great joy to all people? Because right, whatever brings great joy to me most likely is not going to bring great joy to you. That for me, a day of great joy would mean waking up early, playing around to golf, getting home, eating a pizza with a bunch of meat on it, and then watching football later that evening. Right? That would be a day of great joy for me, and that would be a day of great sorrow for my wife. 
right? No joy in that. She's thinking, if there's a hell, that's what it would be like right there. My, my, my husband playing golf and eating pizza. Because what's great joy for all people is not great joy. Or what normally is great joy for some people is not always great joy for all people. So how can Jesus' birth be great joy for all people? And I think verse 9 begins to clue us in. The angel of the Lord appeared to them, appeared to the shepherds, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. My guess is most of us don't connect Christmas with fear, right? Depending on your in-laws, maybe you do a little bit, but most of us probably not, at least not this kind of fear. Because let's be honest, most of our Christmas movies where the angels show up, it's really lame, right? You watch it and you kind of giggle. You're like, if that's really what an angel's like, I'm pretty sure I could, could beat them up, you know? I mean, or, or I don't know if any of you watched the History Channel, the Bible series um, that was out a few months ago. I gave it like 10 minutes and they had angels come that were ninjas. And I was done at that point. I'm like, this is ridiculous. These angels do not scare me, even though they did have good moves. Um, it was just ridiculous. It was, and, and most Christmas accounts of the angels are just, just lame. And I think of our nativity scenes, right? They're, they don't generally instill much fear in us. And the, the, this past Christmas, my, my mom was really excited to get my son Isaiah the, the Fisher-Price Little People nativity set, nativity set. And so she was really excited. My son was about a year old. And, and so he opens it up and he loved it. And he opens the box. He looks in. He sees all the pieces. And he was just, his eyes were wide open with amazement. And I could just see him deciding what piece he was going to pull out. Right, he's looking at the angels, the shepherds, the sheep, everything. And to my great pride, the first piece he pulls out was the baby Jesus. Right, I'm thinking, my son's a prophet. Right? He already sees the significance of the baby Jesus. This is incredible. Right? And I'm watching this, and my son just sort of looks at the baby Jesus. And the next thing he did was try to eat the baby Jesus. <laughs> Are that clearly our nativity sets are not instilling much fear when our babies are going around trying to eat the baby Jesus, right? Just not a fearful deal. That we look at nativity sets, they're, they're quiet, they're calm, they're serene. And yet the Christmas night begins in great fear. Why? And it's because the glory of the Lord shone around them. That glory that was in the Old Testament that Moses and Elijah could not look at. The glory that filled the temple when Isaiah entered and he said, woe is me for I am ruined. That glory fills that space and the shepherds are filled with fear. See, when I encountered the, that bear in Kings Canyon National Park, one thing struck me more than anything else. And that was, as I saw him walking towards me, I knew that thing would not be moved under any circumstances. Right, if you had asked me before then, Tim, if you ever get in a fight with a bear, would you win? I'd probably say no, but I would probably also think there's a good chance I can do him some harm. Right, like I'll, I'll go down with a fight and I'll take him out a little bit, but he'll, he'll get me ultimately, but I'm going to do some damage before he takes me out. But seeing that bear come near to me, seeing him walk near, I knew he could not move at all. With all my strength and all my might, I could not move him. And, and it's that sort of fear that the shepherds feel here. Why? Because of this glory. And we have to be careful because glory is kind of a churchy word, right? Not a word we use a lot. And, and what it meant literally in the Hebrew was it, it, it meant something heavy, something weighty. And to be glorious was to be 
heavy. And this is why every time people in the Old Testament or in the New Testament encounter God, fear is their reaction. Because God is real. He's heavy. And we're not. We're flimsy. We're flighty. We're ghosts. And when we stand in the presence of what is truly real, we are exposed. We're undone. We sense our nakedness. We sense our emptiness. And that's what the shepherds sense here, that they have nothing. That God is real. He's glorious. He's weighty. But that glory that fills us with fear is also why all of us can have great joy. Because the only way to know true joy is to know true glory. To encounter God in his glory can fill us with a sense of deep joy. What do you get your joy from? Sports teams? Because they're going to lose. Money? Because you'll never have enough. Or you'll have to spend it on things you don't want to spend it on. Or you'll get sick. There will be bills. Your career? Because you could have always advanced further. You could have always had a better idea. You could have always done more. Your kids? Because at some point they'll disappoint. They'll make a mistake. They'll frustrate. They won't take a nap when you need them to. The, The things we try and get joy from in this life, they're not heavy enough. They're not real enough. The winds of life blow them away. And they expose us for what we are. But if you encounter God on his terms, if you know God and you know his glory, you have a joy that cannot be moved by the circumstances of life. So the question for us then is, okay, do we have that joy? I'm not asking if you're happy. Do you have that joy deep down? Because this is a joy that is accessible to all people, right? Because it's not connected to how much money you have, how good your life is, if you're healthy, if you're happy. It's not connected to any of that stuff. It's connected to God in his glory alone, to the unshakable, eternal, immovable glory of God. And it's the same glory for Caesar Augustus as it is for shepherds. And the same glory that it is for the rich, that it is for the poor, that it is for the depressed as it is for the happy, that it is for the sad as it is for the glad. It's the same glory because it's the one God to whom we draw our joy from. So do we have that joy that is not tied to the circumstances of life, but is tied to having encountered the true, glorious, weighty God? So I think this text gives us a couple of, of clues as to what that looks like, if you have that joy. Not foolproof examples, but a couple of examples. The first being that people who have encountered God, they praise if you see the shepherd's reaction, right, they go to where the baby Jesus is and, and they tell people. Right? They give God praise for what he's done. They tell other people. And so that's a question for us. How do you speak about God to others or do you speak to God about others? Is it with joy? Is it with thankfulness for what he's done in your life? Is it with gladness or is it silence? If it's silence, it's a sign maybe you haven't encountered God on his terms. You don't have a connection to that true glory. More than that, the shepherds leave the baby Jesus, and it says they go away glorifying and praising God. For me, how do you pray to God? Can you just thank God for minutes on end about how great he is, thankful to him for all he's done, enjoy and praise, glorifying him? Or are your prayers more like, God, I kind of need this, I need that, I'm on this, let's help with this. I'm not saying that's all bad, but can you just pray thanking God? 
Or as we gather corporately to worship and we sing to this God, do you sing with, with joy and with passion or with indifference? Do the words move you or do they leave you cold? As we see the reaction to the birth of this Jesus, the people who encounter God's glory, they praise. And they aren't foolproof examples. They're not proof because there's lots of people who praise but don't really know God. There's lots of people who can, can look the part but don't live it. And, and so it's just a good question. Do you have that joy? Do you praise God like that? But secondly, people who have encountered God and his glory, they endure. And one of my biggest frustrations with Christianity today is that I think a lot of churches market the Christian faith as if it will make you happy. So become a Christian and have your best life now. Right? Have, have a Christian, become a Christian and your problems will go away. And it's, it's nonsense. You might follow God and have more problems. You might come nearer to God and have a harder life in some ways. And when I was pastoring that church in Indiana... Uh, one of the absolute hardest seasons of my life was we had one of an, uh, an elder who had a heart attack. He actually had the heart attack on Sunday morning and he came to church that day. Just, that dude's in heaven for sure. Um, but he, he had a heart attack, he comes to church and, and he goes and he spends the next three weeks in the hospital fighting for his life with, with, with his heart in a coma. We went, I visited him there almost every day, visited there with his family. I was there the night that, that, he, that he died. And the hardest part of that for me was going and visiting with his widow, sitting at her kitchen table. And every, every time I went and visited her, she would always apologize to me because she wasn't going to be in church on Sunday. And I'd always ask her why, not to give her a guilt trip or anything, but just why, you know, why would you be there? She would always tell me because if I went, all I would do is cry. And that killed me because we had, a, it was a small church, it was a family church. If there's ever a place you could just go and cry through the whole service, it'd be okay there. And yet for whatever reason, in the 60 years of her life, the church has communicated to her that if you're going to cry at church, just don't go. It's not a place to be broken. It's a place to be whole. It's a place for happy people. It's a place with their li- where people have their lives together. And that, that kills me because what that says is you can have joy if you're happy. Not you can have joy if you know God, even if your life's falling apart, even if death is touching you, even if your life is not going the way that you want it to. It's irrelevant because your joy is not connected to the circumstances of your life. It's connected to the joy and to the glory of God. One of my favorite verses in all the Bible is Luke two nineteen. And there Luke says of Mary, Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. I love that verse, and I've, I've, I've given a lot of thought. What does that mean? What does Luke mean by that? And one thing we know, if, if you read the beginning of Luke's gospel, Luke is a meticulous historian. He begins the gospel by saying, listen, I am trying to write a detailed, orderly, accurate account of this man Jesus' life. And so one thing I've done is I've gone and I've interviewed a bunch of people. I've talked to them. I wrote down notes. I, I am giving you the best of Jesus' life I can write. And so my guess is, if Luke knew this is what Mary was thinking, there's only one way he could have found it out. As he went to the older Mary, as he's writing this gospel, and asked her, Mary, what was it like that night Jesus was born? What was going through your head? And what she says is, is I took it all in. The glory of God, the birth of his son, I took it in. I treasured it above all else. 
And you think that got her through all kinds of things. Because Mary, in many ways, is the first Christian. She's the one there at Jesus' birth, and she's the one there at his death. She's the one there as crowds are cheering him on and wanting his teaching and drawing near to him, and she is there as crowds shout and cheer for his death. She's there as a woman goes and touches Jesus' robe and is healed of all her diseases. And she's there when Jesus' robe is stripped from his back and he's led to a cross. And yet Mary had something that got her through it all. And I think it's because on that night she encountered the glory of the God becoming human flesh, wrapped in swaddling cloths, laid in a manger. And it gave great joy to a young mom at the birth of her son, and it gave great joy to an old, old widow after her son had died and come out of his grave. The only thing that will ever give you real joy in life is the glory of God. Who God is, what he is, and what he's done. And that is for all people. Not just for Caesar. Not just for the righteous. Not just for the good. It's for all people. So that's how... We know true joy. It's to know true glory. Because God was born to get closer to you. To come near. To meet you on his terms. As that bear kept coming closer to me, I did everything I could. I had the hands above the hair, or the heads above my head. I was saying, whoa, bear, all I could. But he kept coming closer and closer. I remember literally, as he's walking, he's just got maybe a dozen yards from me, and I remember thinking to myself, so this is how I die. Not the way I wanted to go out, God, thanks. Uh, literally, that was the thought that, that went through my head. And he, as he kept drawing near, there, there was just a sense, I have never felt that out of control, that empty-handed, that full of nothing. And then the bear, for whatever reason, just turned and ran away left me alone. Nothing I did, nothing I said. And I went from incredible fear to just standing there, trying to, just trying to take in everything that had happened, trying to understand, trying to, to recover my heart rate, right? And if you meet God, you really meet God, that's how you have to meet him, with nothing. Empty-handed, humbly, that Christmas, the birth of our God, means good news and great joy, but just not the way that we think. Because it, it means this God came to meet us on his terms. But what that doesn't mean is that he comes and he meets us, and even though he has every right to look at us and say, you know what, you've done too much, you've gone too far, you've sinned too much, you're not good enough to come in. He doesn't. It's not what he does. Instead, what he does is he takes all of his glory, all of his weight, and he puts it in a manger. So he can know, and we can know, there are no one, there is no one too low to enter his kingdom. And then he takes that glory, and he takes it to a cross, overcoming death and sin, so that we could know he has great joy for all people, because nothing has power over him. So that God has come to get near to you. But you have to come empty-handed, in humility to meet him on his terms.